The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. I'm incredibly grateful for uh, our praise team and Adriana Christmas's leadership. Uh, that Prince of Peace song reminds me how God's love is ferocious and it's violent so that we may experience his peace and embody his peace. Uh, we come now to our text uh, where we know that Jesus um, is the ultimate uh, individual to remove all sin and save us. He is the one that we know is Yahweh and he saves. That's the title of our entire sermon series. And in the ancient time, what was funny is that Israel figured that they can adopt other gods and that they will provide particular salvation. But here in this poem by Isaiah, in this prophecy, he lets us know that God is the only one that can save. Will you read along with me or hear, read God's word? Uh, let me read God's word in your hearing as you read along with me, um, starting at chapter three, verse one to chapter four, verse six. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful musician, the uh, expert in charm and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them and the people will oppress one another. Every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother and uh, his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, he will speak out saying, I will not be a ruler. I mean, a healer in my house. There is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people for Jerusalem has stumbled. And Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence for the look for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil to themselves. Tell the righteous that they shall be well, it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants, are, oppress are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people. Your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your path. The Lord has taken his place 
to contend, he stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with elders and prince of his people. It will. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor in the houses. I mean, it, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughter of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantingly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike like a scab the head of the daughter of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants and the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses and the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets. The signet rings and the nose rings, the festal uh, uh, festal robes. The mantle, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen, gar linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of a well set of well set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. mourn. Empty she shall, she shall sit on the ground. The seven women shall take hold of one man in, the day, in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has recorded for life in Jerusalem. When, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood stain, uh, blood stains of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night over all over all the glory. There will be a canopy. There will be a booth of shade by day from the heat and for a refuge in a shelter 
for from the storm and rain. The very words of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. Let me ask you this. When it comes to where we are in life, are we asking the wrong questions? It's easy to understand that and look at the Gospels because we have the full picture. Jesus helps us. A careful look at the gospel shows that Jesus seldom accepts the question posed to him. It's Henry Nouwen who lets us know that he exposes them by coming from the house of fear. To none of the, these questions did Jesus give a direct answer. He never gave a direct answer. He gently put aside uh, ask as ask questions um, emerging from false worries. Again, he gently put aside. He gently put aside as questions emerging from false worries. They were raised out of concern for for prestige, influence, power and control. They do not belong in the house of God. Therefore, Jesus always transforms the question by his answer. He made the question new and only then worthy of his response. In this season of our lives, what questions are we asking and where do we feel that we are asking the wrong questions because we feel as if God has not responded? Do we feel as if we're not asking the right questions or are actually praying the right prayers because God has not responded to our crisis? Do we feel that we're overwhelmed right now because of the losses that we feel because we are going to God, but there is nothing happening? Some of you who have tuned in this morning have tuned in out of spite. You feel lost or you are concerned as to what is going on and you don't necessarily know if you believe in God. In fact, you probably stop believing in the Lord. But let me tell you something that God does not respond to our crisis according to our will. God responds to his people according to his will and gospel renewal is a promise. It's a promise from God because what it says is it says earthly loss is not comparable to a heavenly gain. Gospel promise a gospel renewal is a promise from God because what it says is that our earthly loss is not comparable to our heavenly gain. I want you to remember that. I'm going to say it one more time. Gospel renewal is a promise from God because what it says is that our earthly loss is not comparable to a heavenly gain. How do we know this and why do we struggle with this? We struggle because when we even look at what the people of God have, they, what we can relate to in our particular text, a people who have walked away from God, a people who uh, actually are feeling a loss because God is taking away from them. And the loss that they're feeling is the loss of all of the pleasures and the sins and the misery that they feel that they found so much validity in. But the destruction and the devastation that is upon them is one is is one of uh, of of out of their own own right uh, 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 sorry out of their own 
their wrong way of worshiping God and putting their idols before God. You may say, I don't I don't know, Mike, because I'm not feeling it right now. But I want to say to us, our hearts fail to bend towards God. Why? Right now. Everybody, all of us are fearful and we don't necessarily run to God first. But it's it's evident to the fact that we're all radically corrupt, radically corrupt in a way that our hearts remind us that we don't want to trust in God. We don't want to rely on him. In fact, consequently, our hearts show and are exposed to the most we, our hearts are exposed to the deepest, ugliest parts that people can see because of how we respond in crisis, how we respond in devastation, how we respond in loss. If we are children of God, how do we respond knowing that he is the one that will supply all of our needs? We flirt with our idols and we're blatant with it in the face of God. The idols of comfort and self-sufficiency are right there. We can't remove them because we don't want to lose control. Israel doesn't want to remove the idols because they don't want to lose control. Not only do they don't want to lose control, but they enjoy it. They enjoy power. They enjoy control. They enjoy all of the things that they can get their hands on material possessions. They enjoy all of the worldly and earthly things. They don't want to put them to loss. They want both and. And so when we look at our text this morning, two points pop up is that this is that loss for gospel promise is enriching. And that the second one loss for gospel promise is reassuring and cleansing. Let us look at our first point. We ask the question is, how is loss enriching? I've never felt the loss in my life that has actually enriched me. Yes, you have. It's called weight loss, first of all. And so when you, if you lose some poundage, if you, if you stop eating the junk that you're eating at the house right now, see, I'm trying to do the same thing. I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to supplement grapefruit for Starburst. You see what I'm saying? I know you're struggling with that, too. Same way. I'm not trying to get the, 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 they call it the Rona 20 or the Rona 15, whatever that is. But loss is enriching. And the reason loss is enriching is because it helps us with our personal lives and it helps us in our society to know that we don't need absolutely everything at our fingertips. We need God the most. The more that we do away with pleasure, the more we do away with control, the more we do away with self-sufficiency, the more that we lose those things, the more enriching our spiritual lives will be. When we look at verse one, we see this. And, and, and this is this imagery. Remember, is poetic. And these poetic imageries are phenomenal from the standpoint is they're very graphic, but they're stark and right in your face. But so when you look at verse one, he says this for behold, the Lord God of hosts, first of all, the one who is almighty, the one that is actually strong, who is the sovereign one. He is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah. What is he taking away? Support and supply. Why is the Lord God taking away the essential bread and water? And and we also see the military support, the government official, the national leaders, which are the prophets and the judges, the local people, which are the elders and the craftsmen. Isaiah combines the permissible and the impermissible, saying that the ones that are the diviners and the elders, the captain of 50 and the man and the man of rank. 
He's talking about just the, 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 the everyday person, the one that goes to work every day. He is taking away all of support. It would just say right now, if we were in the middle of this crisis, your utilities were taken away. The plumber who could come into your house and fix it were taken away. Your AC was taken away. All of your food and nourishment was taken away. Uh, everything around you was taken away. The, the National Guard who is helping you is taken away. Uh, the, the leaders who are trying to provide for you are taken away. Everything is in destruction and chaos. And God is taken away, first of all, because he has the power to take things away. Will you understand that God has the power to take things away? It, it says to us in this structure that we've set up in our government structure, in our community structure, in our, in our city structure, in every aspect, we cannot be so trusting in our own structures that we don't realize that God can make them collapse at any time. We're fearful people of loss. If we lose these things, if these things are the very things that cause us to to not trust in God or to feel as if that power is crumbling right at our, at our fingertips and control is falling through our hands like slime and glue. We, we, we can't catch it. It's like water. It's like a vapor. We can't hold on to these things that are called self-control. We have to lose it. God is addressing his people. In the way of the, in the midst of their loss, he's address, he addresses them in a strong way. When you look at verse four, verse four, God describes a nation that is immature. He says that you will make I he said, and I will make boys of their princes and infants shall rule over them. In verse five, and the people will oppress one another. Every one of his fellow and every one of his neighbor, the youth will be insolent to the elder and despise the honorable. I want you to think about that for a minute. God describes this immature nation lacking experience who have juvenile ways. And Isaiah is masterful in capturing the current issue because in their juvenile ways, what he is saying is they are not worthy to be of leadership. And yet these are the people that you allow yourselves to be governed under and shameful leadership at that, because these are the same ones who've encouraged and has oppressed people. When you look at verse five. When you see verse five, people who have been oppressed and then even seeing that youth have been the very ones to rise against their elders. I always heard it growing up. The, oh, these young people are getting worse. It's always gotten worse over time. Generation after generation. What do we do about it? What we understand is that this chaos does not stop. It progressively gets worse in our society. We have been tainted from the beginning of the fall. It's messed us up in the Westminster Lord of Catechism helps us because it says in the midst of this chaotic leadership that they are having, this sinful leadership looks a particular way. When you at, when they ask the question in, in question 130, it says, what are the sins of superiors, meaning leaders, uh, government officials, community leaders? You may be a leader in your school system, but what are the what are the sins of the superiors? The sins of the superior are besides says this are besides the neglect of duties required of them an inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit or pleasure. In other words, 
leaders of our communities, cities, and nations, if seeking their own personal gain and ease and pleasure, allowing themselves to fall to the power of, uh, to the idols of power and control, perpetually allowing their hearts to be corrupted by them, what it says then is they do not care about us as human beings, those that are under their leadership, but it also says that they only care about their gain, their ease in life, what they can profit, and the pleasures they can enjoy. But if we were to understand that leadership, that we are to pray for, which Titus 2 tells us, I mean, Titus chapter 3 tells us to submit ourselves to it and pray for it. If we were to understand if that is the case, then they are held to accountability. In our current situation, in current situation right now, in this crisis, we are held to accountability. Accountability that helps us not look past the issue of our community. Allowing ourselves to care for the needs of others. I want you to track with me now. And also you can say amen right there in your bedroom or your couch or as you're eating your burrito or whatever. You can say amen. But I want you to think about this. We, have we at times have closed our eyes and clenched our fists at the needs of those of our, who are our neighbors. We've ignored the food desert in Memphis and in surrounding communities. In fact, in 2017, uh, Memphis was considered the hunger capital of the world. I think it's still to this day. And we see large percentages in these food deserts of people who don't have access to supermarkets and several of our residencies who don't have trans transportation to get to those food markets. Our oppressing of our neighbor our oppression of one another is not to be concerned with their needs. Dismissing the babies that need food. Dismissing the families who are suffering because of the issues of unemployment. Dismissing the crisis within the homes that people are having because of what they lack. We in our own community, some of us have three or four grocery stores. Some of us have so much at our fingertips that we never think about who doesn't have. The next time you go to Kroger, the next time you go to Costco, the next time you go to Sam's, the next time you make a, a run to Sprouts or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, the next time you do that, I want you to think about the person who cannot jump in a vehicle and run that and go in that direction. The next time you can walk down the street and go to your grocery store. I want you to think about the person who has to walk uh, 45 minutes to get to a grocery store, who can't afford an Uber to get to a grocery store. I want you to think about it in light of this pandemic. It's hard, it's difficult. Some of y'all are saying right now, well, there's a stimulus package coming. Can I say to you, there's no stimulus package that can uh, replace the human care and love towards our neighbor and one another. And this is why downtown church and friends who are visiting us, we're inviting you because we need you to join us in a very practical way. Tuesday, March 31st, right at 430 Vans at Streets Ministry, we will be hosting a mobile food pantry, handing food to people who are in need from 10 to 1 p.m. I want you to sign up. 
I want you to, if you can't, I want you to help assist in some kind of way. Because the thing is, we are trying to supply our community who's desperate, desperately in need. Who cannot just simply go and eat out. Who can't keep going to the corner stores and eating wrap snacks and eating honey buns. We'll also do this on April 18th. See, I'm making this very practical for us. Our deacons will host one on 18, April 18th. We need your help. We need all of the volunteers downtown. We need to come together because the government is doing that. Our communities around the nation who are afflicted and broken are seeing the National Guard be deployed. Military units coming along and assisting people. Now, some of us are not a part of the army, the military, or any other branch. But the branch that we are a part of is called the army of the Lord. I know that may sound cheesy to some, but we can be deployed into our communities in order to help one another. What am I getting to and what do I believe that our text helps us to see is that what God has taken away from Israel, from Jerusalem, from Judah, is what he's taken away. But what God has given us today and what we lack now and those who lack don't have to lack if we can come along and lend a hand. I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. And I hope you're tracking with me. I hope I get I hope you're nodding your heads, because what we ought to understand is that God has equipped us to love our neighbor in the most deep and selfless ways. In the most deep selfless ways he caused us to do it and we can see more if we look at this text as Isaiah once once again illustrates so perfectly in verses six through seven where he, where a man tries to 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 make his brother the leader he walks into his father's house he says you you can have a you can have a cloak you can be a leader a cloak was indicative of authority and what he was trying to to put on him he was trying to put Someone who was unqualified and unwilling and childish in leadership. But there is something to the fact that just trying to find unwilling leaders to take responsibility of an unruly nation. When you think about this, it gets to something that far too long we allowed ourselves to be distracted by. Yes cultural systems and value systems. We've allowed ourselves to be distracted by po politics and, uh, 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 and, and patriotism that we and nationalism that we allowed ourselves to allow those things to become idols. And what we've done, those become the very words and deeds that have shown direct rebellion against God because our allegiance are to those things and not to the glory of God. This is why he says they've defied, they've defamed, they've rebelled against the glorious presence of God. Who should do such a thing? You would think to yourselves, but amid this turmoil of their society, which is collapsing, the, uh, the prophet is saying to them that you've been misguided by unqualified leaders. This is what he says when you look at verse 12. My people, uh, 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 infants are, your, are their oppressors and women are. Uh, rule over them my people your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your path I want to clear something up it doesn't mean that women are mis that all women mislead people 
I want to clear that up. And this essentially is saying that those who have multiple wives have allowed themselves to be influenced by those concubines. And so what they have allowed themselves to be influenced by is by ungodly women who try to allow to lead them astray and try to cause destruction and damnation. They've been misguided. And this is why when you look at uh, 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 what God is saying to the people, it's indicative that his judgment is upon the misguided people because his people who he profoundly loves are the apple of his eye. Zechariah 2 and 8 says the apple uh, that, that the people of God are the apple of his eye. Therefore, his judgment. This is this is it. Therefore, his judgment. It's a way to love them. It's a way to care. It's the way to chase them. It's the way to come after them. It is reckless in some ways. Why? Because he cares deeply about them. He talks to the elders and the princes, the people who are ruling. And he says to them, you've actually stolen from the poor and you've brought what you've taken from them into your house. And I see it. And how you've desired to crush them. I see it. And God, this is where we get to verse. Where we get to when you look at verses 14 through 15, this is what he's communicating. He says, is this. Uh, is it is you who have uh, it is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your ha- is in your house. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, when we look at 16, God begins to speak. But look at how the poetic utterance describes Zion, a daughter who's halty outstretched neck, walking around fancy, mincing, flirting, strutting in a way that is in disregard to God. The perfect way to see this is totally ignoring and not looking at what God is doing. And now when you look at verse 17, where he says, therefore, I will strike with a scab the heads of the daughter of Zion, the very one who's ignored, the very one that's flirted with idols, the very one that's dismissed God, the very one that's made sure that the pleasures are superseding God. What does he say? He says this. And the Lord will lay bare the secrets of their the secret parts. He will expose them. Isn't that your fear? Isn't your fear that God will expose your heart? That at loss, you will be exposed because of what you desire for yourself, your own self-sufficiency, the ugliness in what you think of others and, or how you think of others. But then also the ugliness in your heart, how you dehumanize people, how you're desensitized to the needs of others. God begins to shine light on us, not simply to save us for our own good, but to save us from the ugliness of our hearts. To save us 
from total destruction and radical corruption. This is when we see in verse 18, he just goes on a litany of what he's taken away again. In chapter three, it's just this theme of God taking away from the people, loss as it is. He's removing. And guess, look what he says. In that day, the Lord will take away the fiery, uh, uh, the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents and the pendants and the bracelets, and the scarves. He goes on about these material things. Many of you could say, oh, does that mean I need to get away, give away all my material possessions? Does that mean I don't need to be I don't need any material? That's not what we're saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. They've made that crescent. Which. Faces the, which actually worships the moon God, their God, they've idolized it. These possessions have become the very thing that they've idolized. Now, if you've idolized your possessions, if you idolize what you've gained, if you idolize the things that you hold, that's where you should consider your heart. That's where you should consider what sits on the throne of your heart. Is it God or is it money? Is it God or is it security? Is it God or is it cash? Is it God or is it self-sufficiency? What is it that's at your heart? But look at what he says next in verse 24, where he's, where he's saying the insteads. He goes on this litany. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of uh, uh, well-set hair, baldness. See, that's where I struggle with the Bible because a brother like me, I'm bald. OK, and I, I don't think it's bald head brothers be comfortable because I don't think it's talking to us. You know, it's talking to people that's, that's trying to hide all the bald headedness. In other words, uh, he says that instead of the rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. The 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 very things that were pleasures and luxuries, God has taken away. For those that you who are resting in your luxury right now, you may say, I don't have five bedrooms. I don't have a pool in my backyard. I don't have the luxury is the comfortability that you have. So every one of you that's resting in your luxury, I want you to I want you to hear this. What if God were to take it away and gave you? Rottenness gave you the spoils, gave you the very things that uh, that you don't like, you don't desire? What if your life is downgraded from where you are? Will it affect the way you worship God? Will it affect the way you care for neighbor? Let me let me continue on, because I think that 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 the imagery helps us along here, because what God is trying to give a picture of of the daughter of Zion meaning the people of Israel, is a people that are pretentious. He's removing all pretentiousness. But it's come at great loss. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, we will eat our own bread and our own uh, clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our approach. And I'm going to go right back up to to 24 and 25 of chapter 3. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and let her gates, uh, let her gates shall lament 
and mourn and em- mourn empty shall she uh, she shall sit on the ground. Uh, what 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 essentially let me summarize this for us. Essentially, there is a physical loss, isolation, emotional distress, a profound humiliation that everything and everyone has been taken away. Great loss, great loss amongst them. In other words, this loss has. uh, Has in their benefit come so that they may be enriched. By what we will see, the new creation enriched in a way of asking themselves, why trust in the promise of God if it requires this of me? Trusting in the promise of God, promises of God enriches our lives because it helps us to be focused on heavenly things and not earthly things. Remember, earthly loss is not comparable to heavenly gain. So, again, in this current situation, in this pandemic, we feel this sense of loss, loss of freedom, loss to go as we please, loss of financial gain, loss to maximize educational opportunity, loss of employment. You name that loss, it's there. Ask yourself why. Why is it there? What is God saying? What is he doing in this season? How is he trying to communicate to you? What sense of loss do you have and where do you feel as if God is trying to enrich your life? That's the question that you have to ask yourself. In the middle of loss, amid loss, where is God trying to speak directly to you? The next point is this. The the loss of gospel promise is reassuring and cleansing. Now, this is a theological connection here because the branch of the Lord is actually showing us John 15, that he's the true vine, the one that we need to abide in and be connected to. And so that is, again, going to his promise directly to Jesus who's come. And so when you think about that promise, I want you to think about everybody, every one of y'all who's had to sign a promissory note. Some of y'all student loans or a mortgage or uh, a personal loan, you signed a promissory note indicating that you promised to pay back the very thing that you are borrowing. Now, some of us who have student loans are saying to yourself, what if that stimulus package looked like erasing our promissory notes? (laughs) You got to work on that. But the thing is, when you think about that promissory note, as soon as you graduate or as soon as you that first Uh, bill comes, whatever happens, you know you have to pay it back as promised. Here's what God has promised, that redemption is coming. And you see it right in the phrase when it says in verse 2, in that day, the branch of the Lord, in that day, that's the promissory note. That God, redemption is coming, hope is coming, recreation is coming, all in which to make sure that the people, ensure that the people in light of tragedy, in light of loss that's been violent in the previous chapter, could have hope that the Messiah who in his presence, beauty and glory and all of the people as the prophet utters who survive will benefit from the production of the land will know that this is according to God's promissory note to you. But it doesn't come simply uh, uh, to people without a cost. We know that it costs Jesus. But what we see here, that there is a spirit of judgment and burning, cleansing. And that cleansing actually helps us to see that, yes, loss does reassure uh, the loss. 
Lost for the promise of God does reassure, but it also does cleanse. And this cleansing, as we can see, I want y'all to do a study of burning at your house. That's your homework. Do a study of burning over the next week. Because what Jesus, I mean, what God does and says through the prophet here is that he is judging and washing away or burning away all of the corruption in the land. And on the judgment, there is freedom. I mean, in his judgment, there's freedom. Freedom from what? All sin and misery, the very destruction and the devastation that everyone who believes in him will be freed from that. That is the hope that we will have in Christ in a heavenly way. What does it say about people who don't understand that they're clean? It says this in Proverbs 30 and verse 12. It states that there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed from their filth. There's a difference between feeling clean and being clean. And, and, and this is is this is what I'll close us with, because as he talks about this recreation, I just want us to I want to illustrate it this way. This is uh, from the book uh, Start Your Why by Simon Sinek. And what he says is, is he's discussing the motivation and the reason of uh, of this uh, in this section that he has is. What can what you can't see that matters, what you can't see that matters. Y'all help me. I need y'all help. I'm sweating. It's hot. I need your help. Detergent advertisers, listen, the detergent advertisers once promoted their product with the statement like get your whites whiter and your brights brighter. That's the that was the market research that that revealed what consumers wanted. But was it really He explains it this way, that the data was true, that people wanted that. But the truth of what people wanted was different. That the marketers, I mean, the makers of laundry detergent asked the consumers what they wanted for the detergent. And the consumers said that whiter and brighter, uh, uh, whiters, whiters, white, whiter whites and brighter brights. Uh, were what they what they seem to desire. So the brands, what did they do? They differentiated how they got to white whites whiter and brights brighter is trying to convince consumers that adding one thing to the product would affect everything. But why did they want to do that? Later, there was anthropologists that showed this, that they discovered that it was actually driving, um, drying their clothes that changed the perspective. They observed the fact that it wasn't uh, taking clothes out of the washing machine and looking and seeing that they're that they're clean. But it was after taking the clothes out of the dryer and smelling them that they felt as if they were clean. Isn't that funny? That you can still that they could still have a stain on their clothes, but yet a scent would essentially would essentially say or indicate that a clothing was clean, that they missed the punch. Did the laundry detergent spend too much money on that? Absolutely. But here's what's amazing. What's amazing is, is that there's a clear connection to us. That we want to oftentimes feel clean. But we don't want to do what's required to be cleansed. Feeling clean is an outward mask of pretension. But being cleansed requires us to lose the very thing that we want to hold on to. 
Because what this promise says is, is that the true vine, the one who has come to wash away all sin and all destruction, has cleansed you by his love. And yet it was love that hung him on the cross. And as he hung on the cross for love, I want you to get this, is that he hung on the cross to cleanse your hearts, to cleanse your minds, to change you from the way you once were to the way in which you should live for Jesus. And it was that same love that lifted you out of the destruction and the dark places. There's a hymn that says that I was sinking deep in sin, far from peaceful shore, for deeply stained within, sinking to rise once more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. What I want you to know is, is that your loss is enriching, is reassuring, and it's cleansing according to the promise of God. And that in this season to where we can see all of the loss around us, I'm asking you to draw your minds and your hearts to it in prayer. Please fast with us. Please join us in praying daily. And please join us as we uh, serve our neighbors over the next couple of weeks. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love lifting us. We thank you, Jesus, that you're one that reminds us of your, your goodness and your faithfulness. I pray that you help all of us to walk in your will as we experience loss in various different forms. Help us to see how it's enriching. Help us to see how it's reassuring. And help us to see how it's cleansing. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.